We're picking up this morning where we uh, left off in the new series last week in chapter 1 of uh, 1 Peter and starting at verse 13 this morning. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. Peter writes, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose its, their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God, because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. So, show of hands, if you've ever, as a child, or maybe even a little older, said, you're not the boss of me. Come on, you know where liars go. Just kidding. You ever said something like that then? If you haven't said that exact thing, have you ever said, like, don't tell me what to do. You're, like, just leave me alone. I can make my own decision. I can do it myself, right? If I need your help, I'll ask. I like that one. That's good. I got to remember these. I'm going to pull them out when people give me helpful suggestions. But it's kind of an instinct, right? Like, we don't like to be bossed around. Uh, even as adults, maybe especially as adults, we bristle at orders or even sometimes advice. If you didn't ask for advice, isn't it kind of annoying when somebody offers you advice you weren't looking for and you're not really all that interested in, particularly if it comes from sources that you're like, I'm not sure you know any better than me, right? So most, most of us, we don't like bossy people or backseat drivers or armchair quarterbacks. We don't like for people to kind of push into things that we think, well, that's not really any of your business and thanks, but no thanks. Um, that can be a little much. We don't like people telling us what to do. We don't people, like people telling us what not to do or telling us how to think or when's enough or, or treating us like a child. I remember one time when... Uh, when our daughter was, was uh, really small, we moved from church, uh, churches and communities when she was about two weeks old. And as she grew up in this church, you know, she's maybe two years old. And, and I used to like to throw my kids in the air, like grab them under the armpits, you know, and just toss them and then catch them. I caught them every time, never dropped them once. But I can remember being in the parking lot of the church, and, and one of the ladies of the church was getting really upset with me. Don't do that. You're going to drop that child. And it's like, no, I'm not. 
I know what I'm throwing. I know she's mine. I love her. I would never take a chance on dropping her. But she was having such fun, and it was a lot of fun for me. So we kept doing it, although sometimes, you know, we just kind of stayed out of eye shot of her when we were doing it, just so we didn't get that kind of time. But people offer you all kinds of advice when you've got kids, and they might have kids that are, you know, maybe they're only two years older than yours, but they're experts, right? And so they'll tell you when, you're, when your child should be wearing a sweater, even though they're not wearing a sweater, and you're not wearing a sweater, and it's not cold enough to really need a sweater, but they got ideas, right? And so all kinds of that can happen. Roxanne actually got caught once coming out of the mall at, in uh, Stratford, Ontario. And we were, there was the food court and then the exit to the parking lot. And uh, we were going to go out into the parking lot when Emily was, was still a baby two weeks old. And we were new in town and everything. And she got to the door and it was really windy outside. And she was afraid that the wind was going to catch Emily's breath. So she threw like the receiving blanket over her head, over her shoulder, and started carrying her outside. And this old woman in the food court started yelling, You're going to smother that baby! You're going to smother her! And everybody is looking at her, right? And she feels all these eyes on her. And she's like, it's okay. And she walked out and kind of took Emily to the car. She's trying to protect her with the blanket. But for some reason, you'd think that she put a Ziploc bag over her head. And she went back to that mall later, and, like, people walked up to her and said, oh, I, I was there that day, and that's horrible. <laughs> and they were on her side, but you're, you don't feel that when somebody's giving you advice like that. And so we don't like that, right? We don't like people kind of giving us really unhelpful suggestions. We don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like people kind of chiding us like we're children, uh, and we feel like we can make our own decisions. So let me ask you this. When I read the passage of Scripture earlier, did you have any of that kind of reaction to what he was saying? Did you feel like maybe he was over the top? What, what about when he says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. that bother you at all? Or... So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I'm holy. Or and remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He'll judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Prepare your mind for action. Exercise self-control. Hope in the gracious salvation. Live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways. You must be holy. You must live in reverent fear of him. Now, did you have that reaction when I was reading? Did, did I read that and you go, man, that, you know, the Bible's kind of bossy sometimes? Did you feel like that? Did you think, the Apostle Peter can't tell me what to do. It's none of his business how I live my life. No, probably not, right? But why not? Like why when Peter tells you what to do, why when the scriptures kind of give you all of these admonitions, all these instructions, why when it tells you how to live and it even tells you you've got to be holy, that's a pretty high standard, and it says you've got to be obedient like children, and we don't like being treated like children. So why didn't you have a reaction to it? 
Did you not take it seriously? I don't, I don't think that's it. Were you not thinking of these things as kind of particularly applying to you? Did you feel like they were optional or I can pick what I like and agree with it or not agree with it? And then I'll just tell the other people in the car on the way home which stuff I liked and which stuff I agreed with and which stuff I didn't agree with and which ones I'm, that, you know, I, I might take issue with. Or, or maybe, maybe it wasn't clear what he was asking of you. What is he asking you to do? What is he asking you to change? Maybe you didn't really totally understand it or it didn't sink in in that way. Um, and, and I wonder if that's it. What, what is it that makes us kind of hear these things and they kind of wash past us and we go, yeah, that's, that's it. That's the Bible. That's what it's saying. And if you remember what we talked about last week, that, that Peter has started this letter by saying he's going to instruct the people that he knows that they live as people in the kingdom. He says you are, you know, you're people of the kingdom, but you're also in the empire. So he says you're, you're children of the, of the kingdom, but you live in this world. You live as foreigners in this world. Like you're outsiders in the world that you live in, and you live in this culture, this day, this kingdom. For him, it was the kingdom of, of Rome. But for us, you know, we got forces around us too, right? Like we live in a society where everything that everybody around us lives and believes and the way the rules they have for how they think you should live are not always the way that you think you should live particularly as a Christian, right? Do you find that? And so sometimes those pressures, those voices, that, that sense of this is what you do and this is what it means to be successful and this is what it means to be a good person and, and this is what it means to fit in. And, and when we live in the kingdom we live in, it can feel like there's pressure on us to live up to other people's expectations and other people's idea of what is good and what isn't so good and, and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And then we also kind of, as believers, go, uh, we've also got this voice that's telling us what we believe is right and, what, and how we should live. And so, so Peter has kind of instructed him. He says, you're living in both worlds, but really you should be hearing the voices from the kingdom. Like that's, that's what defines you. That's what makes you who you are. And the voices of the empire, the things that are going on around you, the pressures that you feel to fit in. He says, you're a foreigner there. Like you're an outsider to that system. And even though you live there, and even though you feel all of that, and even though there's all this pressure on you, and, and there are these forces that are pushing in on you and trying to squeeze you into their mold and manipulate you and exploit you, that's not who you are. You're a person of the kingdom. And that's what should be shaping you. And that's what you should be drawing from. And that's what should be helping you make your decisions. And so Peter is, is trying to instruct us in this letter on how to live in the empire and not detach from it, but to be guided by our kingdom identity. And so let's look at the instructions here a little more closely as we decide whether we're going to do them or not. So the first thing he says is prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. He says prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. If you're getting ready to act, he says, like if you're getting ready to live out something, if you're getting ready to make a decision about what you're going to do, use your brain. Think about it. Prepare your mind before you go living your life and making your decisions 
and going places and doing things. Like before you kind of get pulled on a path that everybody's going down and, and chase the things that everybody else is chasing, get your head straight. Prepare your mind for action and exercise self-control. Like be in control of yourself and don't just get towed along by all those forces around you. And so those are instructions like kind of for all the other instructions that he's got here. He's saying that what you got to do is, is get your mind straight and exercise self-control and make conscious decisions to live in a kingdom way rather than being forced uh, and, and pressured to live a certain way according to the empire. And so he says, prepare your mind, think clearly, exercise self-control, get, get, get our thinking straight and then our behavior and if we're not clear, we ourselves need to put in the work of understanding what it means to live in a kingdom way. And so then he starts to instruct us on what that kingdom way exactly looks like. He says, prepare your mind for action, exercise self-control, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. He says, like, salvation comes to us. And we know that salvation, you know, the moment that we accept Jesus, the moment that we believe in him with saving faith, that salvation begins then. But he says, like, it's not finished doing what it's going to do. And so there's this sense that salvation starts there and it continues in the present. And he says, until the day we go be with Jesus, uh, that salvation is still working itself out in our lives. And so he says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that's to come. Like, in other words, if you're focused on, on your goals and what it means to be successful and all those things that everybody else is chasing after, you're going to miss something. And so you need to play the long game, and you need to be seeing into eternity rather than shaped by the forces around you. So he says, if your hope's in, in, in what you're gathering right now and what you're building in your little kingdom, then it's not really going to be focused on the right stuff but if you focus on eternity if you're if you're pointed towards God and your hope is in what he's doing in eternity that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world like at the end of the at end of time if, if you've got that long game in mind then you're going to be able to see past all the little forces that are pushing on you now and you're going to gain a bigger perspective on where your life is headed and so we I mean, I'm, I'm really guilty of being the, you know, I used to go to the doctor and I used to say, like, just give me the prescription. Like, just tell me what I got to do. Just give me the physio exercises. I'll take them home and do it. Don't explain this stuff to me. I'm not going to understand it. Anyway. I don't even really care. Just, just give me the prescription. But Peter says, like, you got to be prepared to use your brain to think through this stuff, to focus on what's important, to try to understand it better. Prepare your mind for all of that. And, and you put your hope in, in his gracious salvation. If your hope is pointed into eternity, that's going to put the here and now in a little more perspective so it doesn't feel so big and powerful when it pushes you around. And so he says, look forward to blessings. Like, look forward with hope to what God's doing in the long term. And along with hope, Peter says, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You must live as obedient children. Don't slip back into the old ways. The old ways were all focused on you. 
and satisfying what you want and your desires. You, you just focus on, uh, on your goals and what you want and, and chasing your dream, right? And what, what you've got in mind. And maybe asking God to bless it or to give those things to you. And he goes, no, no, live as God's obedient children. Like focus on what God wants from you and don't slip back into the old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Don't go back to that selfish way of living because that's not the future. That's not going to help you get where you're going. That's not what happens when your hope is pointed in the right direction. And instead of being selfish, the opposite of that is, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I'm holy. Now, tell me that one made you squirm a little bit. Like when God says to you, you got to be holy, and you got to be holy like I'm holy. You get a little nervous with that? Is that kind of a, a way too high goal? Like that sounds really aspirational, like we should aim for that, but come on. Because he says you got to do it, and he says you got to do it like, like I do it, like, like be holy. And I hear that. I can remember the first time I ever heard that was in the Bible. I'm like, are you kidding me? Holy like he's holy? Have you seen him? Do you know God at all? Have you met me? I'm going to meet that standard of being holy like God's holy? I think back then I had this idea that holiness was like, I, I w couldn't even really explain it, but it was something that was so beyond us, which is kind of right. What it means literally is, is like holy other, completely different. So different in another category. His ways are far above our ways, like the psalmist says, kind of like that. God is so different, and not just different like he's weird, but different in a specific way. And if you, if you understand his holiness, if you understand what it means for, for God to be holy, then you got a better idea of where your life should be headed. But instead of writing it off as way too hard to do, you need to understand the difference that there is between him and us. And it's the reason that if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, even the part that they call the Old Testament law, it's not a bunch of laws like do this, don't do that. It's, it's not a list like that. What you find in the Old Testament law, what you find all through the scriptures is a bunch of stories that talk about God interacting with human beings and, and by the way that he acts, by the things that he says, by the way that he does stuff, you go, I think I'm starting to understand who, what he's like. And so we get a good picture of us as human beings and a good picture of God and how we're very, 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 very different. But the reason there's stories is because in the story you see things kind of 3D that you can't see if you were just given a fact. And so we see a God who kind of looks after us and is very patient with us and forgives us even when we mess up over and over and over and over again. And you come to the New Testament and you go, as if he hadn't learned his lesson being kind to you know, the Israelites and being kind to his people and being kind to everybody, you know, you get to the New Testament and they take his own son and they murder him, torture him first, and then murder him. And you go, and what does God do in the face of that? 
he actually forgives us for all the wrongs we've ever done. And so in Philippians, that we worked through a few months ago, it's like there's that Christ hymn where he says, who, you know, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be hung on to or grasped, but gave up his life to death, even death on a cross. Like, our attitude should be as unselfish as Jesus giving up his life on the cross. Like, unselfishness is the measure of who God is. And so John Wesley talks about holiness or sanctification in terms of perfect love. Because he goes, man, God is so loving that he's willing to do anything to save us. And he's willing to sacrifice his own son. His son who deserves all the glory in the universe, who's never done anything but good. And people murder him and he uses that to forgive us for our sins. And our ugliness. And our selfishness. And so the example of who he is, is that God is completely unselfish. And God is focused on helping us. And so Peter says, look, your hope, and then along with hope, you've got to live as God's obedient children. You've got to be holy because I'm holy. And so you've got to be different in the way that I'm different. And you've got to stand in contrast to all the people and the forces and the groupings in the world that live differently than I do because I'm your model, not, not them. And so he says, be holy and uh, obey God and don't slip back to that o- old way, but be holy in the way that God's holy. So we might not be able to do it in the same measure God is. We can't, obviously, right? We can't measure up to him. But we can do a smaller version, a like version, like a replica and in fact, in Antioch was the first place Christians were called Christians. And you know what Christians literally means? It means little Christs. And they meant, when they first coined that phrase, they meant it as an insult. Like, oh, look at them. They're little Christs or little messiahs. They think they're like little versions of the hero. And so they meant it as an insult. But Christians went, like believers, followers of the way, as they were called more often then, went, You're calling us little versions of Jesus? Okay. Thank you. And we took it as a compliment because it is. But when we hear that phrase, be holy, it's hard to hear and it's hard to aim for because there's so much of it and because God is so different than us. One time when I was was a teenager, I used to hang out with a my best friend Steve, and, and I'd go to his house sometimes, and I remember sitting down with Steve and him teaching me to play chess. Well, sort of teaching me to play chess. He taught me to play the first four or five moves of chess and then get checkmated. We never got further than like four or five moves because Steve didn't know how to hold back. Like Steve could never go easy on me so that I maybe had a chance of winning. Steve told me how the pieces moved. Like I learned, okay, the little castles, the rooks, you know, they can go straight and as many squares as are open. And, and, you know, this uh, piece can do that. And the little other guy, I forget what his name is. It's, uh, you know, the ones with the little pointy hat and they can go diagonal. And then... You know, the king can go one move in any direction. He's got choices. He can go any one space in any direction. And the queen can go as many spaces in any direction she wants. She's got all the power. That kind of tracks, right? That makes sense. True to life. 
So I learned the moves of chess. I learned what those pieces were supposed to do. I, learned, I even learned about the, the horse that did the little L in either direction. But Steve couldn't hold back, so I didn't have any chance of winning. So I learned to really love chess so much that I haven't played in probably 15 years. And, you know, it's only when somebody really, really, really wants to play chess and I think, how good are you? I'm not that good. Okay, keep talking. <laughs> Could this be the day that I actually win a game of chess? I taught my wife to play. That's the only chance I had of winning. <laughs> Hope I was kinder than Steve. But there was this thing about playing chess that when he taught me, I didn't think I could ever win, so it wasn't fun. It wasn't rewarding. It didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. And sometimes it can be like that when you're tracking after holiness or, or you hear things like be holy in the Bible. You just go, like, that's so far out there, there's no chance. It's so far above me, what's the point in even trying? And Peter says, look, it's not like that. You might not be able to reach the level I mean, you can't reach the level of holiness that God is, but you can be a smaller version of that. You can actually achieve being a, a Christian, a little, little version of the Christ. And so we may feel like it's unrealistic or unattainable, but Peter's saying you can actually shoot for that, and you can live in a less selfish way, and you can live in a way that you're more guided by the kingdom, and that that's your motivator, and that because... You've got your hope in Jesus and, and, and the ultimate reality of his kingdom. And because you're trying to be holy, you can actually get closer and you can push off the powers that are pushing in on you and you can resist the temptation to just live like everybody else. And so we hope, and, and uh, Peter says you should hope and you should be holy and and remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He'll judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. He says, remember, like you're not here forever. You're only on earth for a while. And so you can live in reverent fear of him. And some people hear that fear thing or talk about, talk of fearing God and, you know, the that Old Testament verse that we grew up with, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And some of us, depending on what your background is, could be feeling like, there's people I fear. Like, there's people that you don't know what they're going to do. They're total wild cards. You can't anticipate. You, they're never fair with you. And, and they can go off at any minute. And you kind of picture, whenever you're told to fear somebody, you're thinking, that's what we're talking about. But you need to understand when, when Peter says you must live in reverent fear of him, he's not saying like, like God can, you know, is like a bottle rocket. Like he can go out, he's got a temper. and He's going to fly off the handle at you and you can't really even anticipate how he's going to react and sometimes he just loses it. That's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about that kind of fear that you can't anticipate what's going to happen. He's talking about the fear, the reverence that you're taking God seriously. That you're understanding that you're, you're, you're less concerned with what other people can do to you or for you. And you're more concerned with what God is thinking and what he's feeling and what he's, he wants. And so you could live either way. You can feel the pressures of all the stuff around you. But he's saying you need to take God seriously. And, and so you need to have reverence for him enough 
that you're concerned with him more than you're concerned about all those other voices and all those other pressures and all those other desires and all those other things that are trying to get you to live a certain way and chase after a certain kind of thing. And if you take them seriously, it's like when you're at work and if you don't have a bad boss, but you got a good boss, but your boss is present, he's in the room and he asks you to do something, you go, okay, sure, thanks, I will. And you go do it, right? And you don't do it necessarily because he's a total ogre. You do it because he's the boss. And, and yes, he has the power to fire you, but it's not like you expect to be fired if you don't do one thing. It's just that you should be doing those things. It's the right thing to do. And if you've got a good relationship with your boss, you're happy to do it for your boss because you want them to think well of the job that you did. And so it isn't fear like you're cowering under him. It's just that you take him seriously. And that's what Peter's talking about here, that we take God seriously enough that we care what he thinks and we care what he responds to and we're more attuned to what he's got in mind than we are all the people around us and all the situations around us and all the goals we've got for ourselves and all that other stuff that tries to shape us and squeeze us into its mold and make us live a certain way. We're forgetting that and we're focusing on Jesus and going, what do you want? And what do you think about the way I'm doing this? And what do you think about the way that I've been thinking about this stuff? Is there anything in my mind that I need to change and look at things differently? Is there anything in my behavior that you want me to snap out of and do differently? And so we take him seriously. We, we live in reverent fear of him as in. We take him seriously and show him the reverence that he's due. And so we hope... And we're, and we're supposed to point our hope in eternity rather than all those other voices. And we're supposed to be holy, like different and separate from that and be able to, to live in a different way, following different goals. And we're supposed to take him seriously enough that we're focusing on what he wants and what he's saying and the goals he has for us rather than all the other things that are trying to make us do something else and be someone else. And after he says those three things, hope, be holy, fear God, then Peter gets into the question of why. And he says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. He says, you know God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited. And it wasn't paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. Like, he paid a ransom for you. And the reason that you follow him, the reason that you're concerned with what he wants, the reason that you have your hope set in eternity, and the reason that you try to strive to be holy like and different like he's different, the reason you do all that is not because you're afraid of him like and afraid of his punishment, but because you realize that he values you so much. That he would pay such a great ransom for you. And so he says, this is why you do it, because you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. He says that empty life of, of just the rat race, of chasing after things and, and success and, and material goods and, and experiences and all the other stuff that we can chase after. He goes, instead of that, and, and you know, chasing after that and maybe even asking God to bless you while you're doing that and help me get those things, he's saying, no, the way that you live is different and the reason you do it is because he values you. Like you're worth more than that. 
And so God pays a ransom. And what a ransom. He goes on to say it was, a, a pre- it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. He paid a ransom and he didn't do it so that you would do something for him that he needs or wants so that you would serve his desires. The reason that he paid a ransom is so that he could give us a life and it was for our sake. It's for our good and not like, you know, parents saying, I'm spanking you for your own good. Not that kind of thing. I mean, sometimes maybe it is for your good, right? If it smartens you up, but, but better than that. And so he's doing it for our sake. He's doing it not because we're at the bottom of the pile, but because we are so valuable to him. And not valuable because of stuff we do, but valuable because he treats us like we're valuable. Because of the price that he paid for us in Jesus. And so our motivation is the value that he places on us so that we live up to what he paid to buy us back from all of that stuff that happens to us and squeezes us and forces us and makes us live in a way that we're chasing after stuff that we never seem to achieve. And he goes, no, invest yourself in the kingdom. Understand that you are worth so much more than that stuff and those goals. And so we don't change for him, for his sake. He is changing us for our sake. And then Peter writes, Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and gave him great glory. So once again, Peter's anchoring everything in the resurrection of Jesus. He's going, look, if you want to know where this all flows from, where it all comes from, if you want to know where the power comes from to live a kingdom life, even in spite of the empire pushing in on you and trying to force you to live the way it lives and and to fit in with the mold of everybody else, the only way you're going to stand out, the only way you're going to really have a life that's distinct from that and is different from that and different in all the right ways because it looks like God, the only way you're going to achieve it is because of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's why the whole New Testament, I mean, two-thirds of it's written by the Apostle Paul alone. And, And when you read Paul's letters, like, he talks sometimes about things Jesus taught us, but way more than any lesson Jesus gave verbally, he keeps going back to the cross. He keeps going back to the empty tomb. And he says, look, that reality, that lesson that he taught us on the cross and, and when he came back from the grave, those things anchor everything in the entire universe. That's a central moment of human history and everything else flows out of it if you're paying attention and you get it right. And so Peter, too, and all the other disciples, they seem to understand that this moment changes everything, that Jesus taught us great lessons while he was here. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's some beautiful stuff there about how to live your life and how to, how to be a truly loving person that God wants you to be and, and how to live in spite of the world sometimes. But even that, it all flows out of this, that Jesus gave up his life and poured himself out on the cross. And he's our example. 
And so Peter continues to instruct us and say, look, that thing that I thought Jesus should have never done, like I tried to talk him out of it, that he wouldn't suffer when he started to talk suffering. But man, when I look back at all these years later, the one thing that shaped me and changed me and the one thing that I've seen work out in church life, the one thing that I've, I, I need to point believers back to all the time, the one thing that able, enables you to fight the powers and the pressures of the empire around you and the culture pushing in on you and the shape of your, your own selfishness and the selfishness of everybody around you in, in the world, the only thing that allows you to live differently than that is the example of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the crucified and risen one. It changes everything. And he focuses everything. And in that moment, he exemplifies for us perfect love, holiness, completely different than anybody or anything else. There's nothing that compares to him. And if you let that one truth that he has died and he has risen and what that means unfold inside of you, it will unpack and it will change you forever. It'll transform you in ways you can't even see coming and it will give your life beauty and meaning and purpose. And all the emptiness you try to fill with other stuff, with material goods or chemicals, you won't need that. Because your life will have the meaning it was born for. all about Jesus' death and resurrection. So Peter says, you should point your hope into eternity and you should be holy in the way that he's holy and try to be different in the way that God's different than us, particularly in the fact that he isn't selfish. And he doesn't all focus everything on himself and his own desires, but he pours himself out and gives himself up and he sacrifices himself for us. So we should take him seriously. We should treat him with the reverence he deserves. And we should be his obedient children. And allow him to do what only he can do through the only means that can make any difference in this. His own life and his death and his resurrection life for us.